Good morning, everybody. If you are kindergarten through fifth grade, you can line up in the back with our lovely instructor, teacher, peoples. The rest of you are stuck in here with me. How are you guys doing this morning? He's doing better, yes. I'm glad, glad to hear it, absolutely. When my wife was praying, the the thing that popped into my mind was, um, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. So have you been set free this morning? Can you experience and walk in that freedom through everything that life throws at us? I pray that you have been set free and you can experience the kind of hope and confidence in what you have in Christ. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Think, don't say it out loud, but just think, who is the most reliable person in your life? That person who no matter what's going on, no matter what time of day it is, you call on that person and they're going to be there. You can count on them. Just kind of get that person in your mind. Are they there? Yeah. What is it do you think about that person that makes them reliable? Is it that they have some sort of obligation or sense of duty? Have they maybe been wronged a bunch of times to the point where they don't want to do that to somebody else? Why can you count on them? How does it make you feel knowing that you can count on them? Blessed? Encouraged? Confident, perhaps, even? Well, guess what? The opposite can be said as well. How do you feel when people let you down? They say they're going to show up for you, and then they flake. Feels good, right? Oh, it hurts. It's frustrating. In some cases, it may even cause you to think, what is it about me that causes others to minimize me? Well, I'd argue that probably has nothing to do with you. But sometimes we think these things, right? No matter the reason, it hurts when people don't show up, and it's a blessing and encouragement when they do. Would you agree? Amen. So what kind of person are you? Can you be counted on? relied upon, to stand up for a friend, or perhaps defend somebody in their absence? Is that you? What about what comes to Jesus? What is your commitment level, your success rate, so to speak, when it comes to standing up for Jesus or being a reliable witness? Well, with that said, grab your Bible. Open up to John chapter 18. We're nearing the end of our going on 10-month journey through John. But as you're turning to John chapter 18, we know, just to kind of catch you up if you've been with us, Jesus has been arrested. He's in custody. They were in the garden. Judas led this massive gathering of people to go and arrest him. And now... Here we have what is essentially going to be two trials. Jesus is going to stand two trials. He's going to stand a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. And I use that term trial very loosely because as we'll see, 
What's happening with Jesus is not a typical Jewish trial in any way. But Jesus standing before the high priest and this interaction that's happening is going to be sort of the focus of the message, the main event, so to speak. So if you're a note taker, if you just want to kind of see where we're going, the title of the message today is Be Reliable. Be Reliable. All right, so are you in John 18? It's good because I'm not. Okay, John 18, we're going to pick up in verse 13. So again, Jesus has been arrested in the garden, and now we pick up in verse 13. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who would advise the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his disciples, this man's disciple, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warning himself, warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now, grateful for just the gathering of your people. I'm so encouraged every time that we can come together in community, Lord, and oftentimes the only thing that we have in common is you. And Lord, isn't that enough? God, we pray that in this place, your presence will be felt and known. And people can know and understand that this is a place of safety. Because you're here. Of comfort. Because you're here. God, unite us together around the common purpose of loving you and loving others and making you known throughout the world. Speak through me, I pray, with boldness, clarity, and accuracy. I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, if you have questions, you can text them to that number. We'll come up here at the end and answer the questions. So please feel free to interact in that way. I'd love for you to do that with us. I'm going to ask another question because I like asking questions. We just read this text. So who in these several verses 
that we just read, who is the high priest? And I ask for two reasons. One is because it's a trick question. And two, because it's a little bit confusing. If you were really paying attention to how this is worded, you are probably confused. Anybody confused? One person, two people. Well, allow me to um, confuse you more <clears throat> if you weren't confused. Annas is the first person that Jesus talks to in verse 13. You see that? They led him over, and Annas was the first person that he engaged with. He is the father-in-law of who? Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is who? High priest. Okay, no, no confusion there, really. In verse 19, look down at verse 19, the high priest is questioning Jesus, correct? Yeah. But at the end of that conversation, in verse 24, Annas sends Jesus to the high priest. Oh, wait a minute, I thought, I thought Caiaphas was the high priest. So who's asking the questions in verse 19 then if Anna sends Jesus away after he had asked the questions to the high priest? There's a little background here, which may help a little bit. <coughs> Annas was formerly a high priest. And once in Jewish culture you gain the title of high priest, you carry it for the rest of your life. Right? Like the president of the church. But then we also get the specific designation that Caiaphas was the high priest that year. Okay, so we can see there's a little bit of leeway in how these titles are used. Would it, would it help you at all if I told you that the reason for the confusion is that it's actually built into the passage on purpose to make a point? So what's the point? The point is that neither... Annas or Caiaphas is the real high priest. John is actually trying to confuse the matter to point us to the fact that neither one of them are the high priest. Everything they do, in fact, is cast in a poor light. First and foremost, this isn't a Jewish trial, like I mentioned. Right? It's, it's an informal inquiry at best. There are no witnesses, and the defendant is getting slapped across the face. What true high priest would allow that to happen? The answer is none. No high priest would actually allow that to happen. In addition to that, as you read through that, there's not a single direct quote from either Annas or Caiaphas directing, again, our attention away from either one of those and somewhere else all together. Now, I told you a moment ago that I asked the question, who's the high priest here in this verse? Because it's confusing and because it's a trick question, well, we understand now that the confusion is intentional to make a point. But what about the trick question part? Well, I kind of already gave it away, but John is clearly making great efforts to show us that there is only one high priest in this scenario. And who is it? Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only high priest in this scene. And that's one of the main points of this passage. And the writer of Hebrews, actually, he solidifies for that for us in Hebrews 4, 14, if you want to pull that up real quick. It says, since we have a great high priest, that is Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It says, because we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, because we have that, what should we do? 
Hold tight our what? Our confession that we belong to him. Now let's turn our attention to Peter. How tightly is Peter holding on to his confession? Mm, not, so, uh, not so tightly, right? Yeah. So in addition to making this passage intentionally confusing, John is going to use another writing technique that's going to help make another point. Now some of you are, are like writers and English scholars and things of that nature. How many of you are familiar with the writing technique called intercalation? Nobody? That's good. This is absolutely fascinating. It's good because I'm going to explain it to you and then you'll be like, oh, well, that's cool. So intercalation, it's sort of this technique that encloses or, or sandwiches one scene in the middle of another scene so that each one affects how the other one is interpreted. So we have the two scenes. Think back to how I just read this passage. The two scenes are clear. We have Peter being questioned and eventually denying Jesus. And then we have Jesus being questioned by the high priest. Right? Can you see how that worked? So we're going to look at these scenes separately. But you need to understand this, that in an intercalation, neither episode has begun until they've both begun, and neither episode concludes until they both have concluded. In other words, they're happening at the exact same time. That's what John is doing here in the way that he's writing it. Now, that's important. So let's take a closer look at the scene with Jesus. We read in verse 19 that some kind of question regarding what Jesus is teaching and his followers is asked. We don't get the question because we're not trying to give attention to Caiaphas or Annas, whoever's asking the question, but we get the response. But why do you think these Jewish leaders are asking questions about Jesus' teaching? What is their goal? To what? To trip him up? To get him to say something that might be considered blasphemous or dangerous? Anything they can do so they can say, boom, that's it. Send him away. That's their whole intent. His response, though, in verse 20, takes it in a different direction altogether. Now look at on verse 20. Jesus says, I have spoken openly to who? The world. The world. At this point, had Jesus spoken to the world? Literally? No. This is what we call hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point, but that word is intentional because his Word that's going to go out, the scope is meant to be for the world, right? We know that now. He goes on to tell them, everything I taught you was in public for everyone to hear. I did nothing in secret. But why are you asking me, he says? Why don't you ask the people that were listening to me, the ones that I taught? Ask them because they can tell you exactly what I taught and who I am. That is a key statement in this message this morning. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more, but keep that statement in your mind. That what I taught, others can tell you. What happens in verse 22? Jesus is basically, the translation would be, slapped across the face. Like literally, that's what happened. He gets slapped across the face. Something that, again, would never happen in a real Jewish trial. Ever. It's just not going to happen that way. And Jesus is actually making that point for them. 
He's like, if I said something wrong, bear witness for the wrong. In other words, in this setting, an additional person, a witness, would have been there to say, yeah, that, that's wrong. Is there another witness here for Jesus? No. <laughs> He's there by himself, and he shows them that he knows they're wrong, and they're wrong that they struck him. It's messed up all the way around. I told you, this is not a trial. It's out of control. But Jesus remains in control of the situation. And instead of being found immediately guilty, we're going to find out next week, they send him away for the second trial. Who's that trial before? Just look down in your Bible. Pilate. That's, Mike is going to preach on that next week. So what about poor old Peter? What's been going on with him during this exact same moment and time? So let's look at the two-part scene. Remember I told you the intercalation is one scene and then it's sandwiched by another scene. We got 15 through 18 and then we've got the backside after that. So Simon Peter, he's followed Jesus from the garden to the high priest's courtyard, right? And he's, he can't go in yet. But there's another disciple who has access to the courtyard because he knows the high priest and he arranges for Peter to come in. Now, does John tell us who the other disciple is? It's, it may be himself. A lot of people think that it is. Other people would contest that it, it might be um, Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, who both of them would have had greater access to the high priest so that they could have gained access for Peter. It doesn't really matter who it was. As, as soon as Peter walks through the gate, he's faced with this question. You're not one of that guy's disciples, are you? And the way that the, the language is, it's anticipating a negative response. That's how the, the wording is asked. And so Peter just plays right into it. Nope. I am not. Okay, Peter, not off to a good start here. Um, next, we see him move over to a fire that has been started. And who are the people around the fire that are warming themselves? Any idea? The servants. The servants. It's the very same people that just arrested Jesus. Now they're around the fire, and who's with them? Peter, Peter warming himself. All the opponents of Jesus gathered there together, and here's Peter. And the imagery is, is meant to express a communion, a camaraderie. It's not like Peter's just kind of kind of hiding there. He's in there with them, experiencing the warmth, being comforted by the fire. Some sort of fellowship, albeit ironic fellowship, because Peter just tried to kill some of them. Now he's like buddy-buddy with them. Meanwhile, as he's standing around the fire, sharing in the comfort, Jesus is being treated like a fool and beaten. That's quite the contrast that's happening here, right? Now that charcoal fire scene is going to continue after the Jesus part in the middle. So hold on to that imagery of, of Peter around the fire denying Jesus. Because that is going to come back into play in the very last verses of John. Now don't go reading ahead. All right, Save it. Now you can read ahead if you want. But that, that is going to be a key moment... After the resurrection of Jesus, 
There's this interaction between him and Peter. Keep that in mind. Bump down to verse 25 now, if you would. This is the continuation now of the story that was interrupted momentarily by Jesus' account. Peter's still around the fire, and he's now for a second time questioned about his relationship with Jesus. You're not one of those disciples, right? I am not. The second opportunity for Peter to stand up for Jesus' sake, represent him, and for a second time, he fails. Man. Then thing, things get ramped up a few notches as, as if things hadn't already gotten serious. We move from the sort of anonymous accusation now to a very personal one. Someone who claims they saw Peter in the garden and what he did. So this guy now is a servant of the high priest whose ear got cut off. What position did he hold? He was a servant of the high priest, so these guys probably worked together. He was in the garden, and he was a relative of who? Who's the guy? What's his name? Malchus. Yeah, we got his name. I don't know why, but we got his name. So this guy was a relative. That's the equivalent of being caught red-handed, like, I work with this guy. He's my relative. I saw you do it. Aren't you that guy? Nope. Nope. That's, that's not me. Denial. And the moment that happens, what occurs? The rooster crows three times. This is a mini intercalation where the rooster crowing is supposed to be like simultaneous with, with Peter's words. Like it happens immediately. So what's the significance here of the rooster crowing? Well, we've got to go back to John 13. You, you can go there if you want. I'm just going to read it. John 13, verse 37. This is after Jesus just told his disciples, where I'm going, you can't come yet. He's talking about going up to the Father. And Peter's like, why can't we go with you? And here's what he says. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Jesus' response, will you? <laughs> will you, Peter? Are, are you really going to lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. John 18, 27, we see this come to fruition. It comes to pass, right? In Luke's gospel account, check this out. You probably know this, but in case you didn't. At that very moment where Peter denies him for the third time, the rooster crows, it says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. More evidence that this is happening at the exact same time. Could you imagine? You just denied Jesus for the third time. You look over and he's staring right at you. Yikes. Let me bring everything into view now. When Jesus is questioned about his teachings, he essentially stakes his reputation on those who heard his teachings and the fact that they would echo his teachings. They would continue on teaching that. Meanwhile, <coughs> Peter's in a place, granted a very difficult one, but he's in a place to stand up for and defend Jesus. And he fails. Here's the point of the intercalation. We are expected to hear the denial of Peter at the very moment he's, Jesus is placing his reputation on Peter's witness. 
That's, that's how that's supposed to work. Jesus says, you want to know everything about me? Listen to the ones who I taught. Namely, in this scenario, Peter. Peter will tell you exactly who I am, exactly what I'm about. And the moment he does that, Peter denies him for the third time. That's the power of what this intercalation does for us, the reader. You can just read through that and be like, okay, cool, that, that, that happens. But when you think about how it all works together, what's the message to us? Be a reliable witness. Now, the message of Jesus was intended, as we read, to go out to the entire world, the salvation of the world. And so the, tr the true test, really, of the intentions and the validity, really, of Jesus' teachings can be proven through the faithfulness of his disciples. Not just the twelve, but us too. Now this isn't mine, but I had to repeat this because this, is, this hits it on the head. Just as Jesus is the Word become flesh, Jesus is the Word become flesh, so the church is the flesh become Word, declaring the message of hope. That's our job. That's, that's why we're here. And what is the message? Well, it's one of grace, truth, love, forgiveness, reconciliation, hope. We hit it back in John 3.16. It's what we all know, right? God so loved the world that what? He gave his only son. That what? Whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the message. That's what, in, in a nutshell, what we've been given to proclaim to the world. So let us live out that truth in the way we love one another. By loving people well. Not just these folks around you, but everyone. Sharing life with them. So many times people ask, well, how can I be a witness? How, how do I best do this? So many times it's done in community where you are in how you love people. That's not a normal human response to love people, especially difficult people. There's something compelling about it. And believe it or not, my friends, contrary to <laughs> a lot of the examples we see around us in the Christian world, our lives are meant to be compelling and attractive. Not perfect. Perfect is not the goal. Compelling and attractive. Is your life compelling and attractive? Again, not perfect, but grace-filled expressions of the love of Jesus. That's what I got for you today. That's what, that's what I get from this. Because initially, you look at it, it just seems like a narrative. We're just... John's just telling the story. Jesus stood a trial, and now he's getting ready to stand a second trial. But there's so much more here for us. So my, my prayer for each of us would be this week to consider how are we doing in our witness? And, I, and I'm not saying grabbing your Bible and going to the corner with a loudspeaker. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how are you living out in your circles right now? At the barbershop at the grocery store, with your neighbor, 
in places you already exist. So many times we feel like we've got to go out of our circles to be a witness. And sometimes that may be true. But you're already around the people that the Lord has brought into your orbit, so to speak. So who is that? And are you being a reliable witness? And let me tell you, being a reliable witness isn't just about preaching to people. Sometimes it develops to that. But so many times it comes through developing relationships to get to the point where you can actually speak truth and hope and life into their, into their lives. It's both and. Right? Discipleship, evangelism, two sides of the same coin. You've heard us say it before, but we disciple people into a relationship with Jesus by, by living a compelling and attractive life. So that's my prayer for all of us, not just you guys. Consider what that means for you moving forward this week. Okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, we want to live lives that honor you. We want to live lives that are pleasing to you. And we know ultimately, Lord, that you have entrusted us with the message of hope. We, your church, by your design, are the means for that message to go out into the world. And that's scary for a lot of us. Lord, it's intimidating for a lot of us because we think we have to have all the answers. We think we have to be completely put together in order to, to have any sort of impact and that's just not the case. Lord, would you help us to see where each of us is in this moment, equipped, prepared, and capable of being a reliable witness. Lord, if we have professed faith in you, if we have trusted you as Lord and Savior, Lord, we, we're ready. We don't have to get ready. <laughs> we have the message. We know what you've done in our lives. And that's enough. Help us to love people well. Lord, we need your help in this. So I pray that you would encourage us. Help us to encourage one another in living this out. And help us to be found faithful. Thank you for each one here this morning. Lord, I know that you are in control. You are sovereign of all things. And, and each person is here for a reason and for a purpose. And let that purpose resonate in their hearts this morning. God, I praise you and I thank you. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.